0: Welcome to the Sogro Marketing Council podcast. The Sogro Marketing Council is a membership organization comprised of growing marketers who want to stay ahead of developments in multiple areas of marketing. This podcast features recordings of Sogro Marketing Council meetings. Tune in to hear expert marketers share tips and discuss the latest strategies and tools in marketing. To join the next meeting and be part of the discussion yourself, Visit SoGrowPR.com, that's S-O-W-G-R-O-W-P-R.com, and click on the Marketing Council tab. Let's get growing. So welcome to the SoGrow Marketing Council meeting. I'm so excited to see you guys today and learn from you. This meeting is designed to help marketers stay ahead of the curve of what's happening in multiple different areas of marketing. And then we also just like to network and share business and learn from each other. So the structure of the meeting is that we've had people that have submitted tips beforehand, and those people are going to present a four-minute tip today. And then after each tip, we'll have about a minute or two for discussion. And that's a great opportunity to ask questions or offer a comment. And sometimes the best tips come out of the discussions, which is really fun. So we'll do that. And then I'll put the order in the chat so that you know who's going first. And um, we'll just go um, by that order in the chat. And if somebody's not here, like I said, there's a couple of people that have submitted a tip and they haven't logged on yet. So we can just skip over them. And then if they come, we'll just do them at the end. Um, But like I said, the main purpose of this is to be able to learn. And we offer tips that are educational and informational. So it's not really a commercial for your company, but it's a chance to show your expertise and by doing that we all represent different areas of marketing so we're able to stay up to speed on all these different areas without having to do the research ourselves so for instance you know i'm not necessarily an seo expert or a sales expert but you know we have different people that represent different industries so we can be able to learn from all of those things without having to just be those experts ourselves and then i also encourage you guys to network outside of this meeting. So go ahead and put your name in the chat, put your website, your contact information, anything you want people to know. And guys grab that information, you can download the chat. And I just encourage you guys to go out to coffee with each other. One reason this meeting started is because I kept having clients ask me, do you know someone that can do a website? Do you know someone that can help with sales? Do you know someone that does SEO? And I'm so careful about who I recommend. I wanna make sure I know them and that I trust them. And this is such a great space to get to know people and really understand what they do. So that way you can say, yes, I know the perfect person. Rebecca can help you um, really with business management. And, you know, you can do all these different recommendations knowing that, you know, these people and that you can trust them. So definitely recommend, you know, go ahead and put your name, contact information in the chat. And then for the people that have submitted a tip. Go ahead and introduce yourself and say your name and your company so that we all know who you are. And this is also a podcast, so we want people who are just listening to be able to know who you are as well. So I'm going to go ahead and put the order in the chat. And Rebecca, I believe we are starting with you. And Megan, I believe you had to drop off early, so I've got you second. And um, like I said, I think Virginia should pop on, Anita should pop on. Um, And then, you know, if anybody else had a tip that they wanted to share, we may have some time for that today too. So, Rebecca,
1: would you like to start us off? Yes, thank you. I'm Rebecca Britsey. Great to meet everybody. I'm a small business management consultant. Most of what I do is process, and process touches on every part of the business. And one of those parts that's been coming up and I've been talking a lot about recently is jargon, so the language that people use when they talk about their business. So that's the tip I want to focus on today, finding ways to identify and replace jargon in the way that we talk about our businesses, whether it's to clients, prospects, or a broader audience. There are two main reasons people use jargon. And one is that, or the two most common, one is that they don't know that they're using it. It's the language that we use in our profession every single day. It's so second nature that we don't notice it. The second reason is that we think it sounds impressive. So we think that by showing that we are specialists and we have access to all this language, Uh, It's a way of demonstrating our expertise or or our great knowledge. It backfires, however, also for two reasons. The first best case scenario is the people you're speaking with don't understand what you're saying. Even if they understand the individual words, they don't necessarily understand what it is that you're trying to convey because they don't use those words in the way that you're using them. At worst, the second uh, effect that it has is that people think that you're trying to sound intelligent. So it comes across as a form of arrogance, um, that by using these words, you're trying to demonstrate that you are more knowledgeable than other people in the room. So either way, using jargon does backfire. And what I always encourage is thinking about dinner table language, not even the language that your clients use when they come to speak to you about what they need, because when they do that, they're still trying to speak your language because they think they need to talk to you about your expertise. If you can bring it all the way back to the language that people use at the dinner table, that is when they are their most natural selves. And that is when they are expressing themselves in their most natural language. And if, if you can tap into that, now you're truly communicating with your audience. So a few ways to identify that jargon and then replace it. Look at all of your marketing materials. Think about your spoken language as well. So what's your elevator pitch? What's your spiel when people say, what do you do? And bring all that together. Have it all written down and then go through it and look for words that are obviously specific to your industry. That's the starting point. And I repeat, it's not always so obvious because you're so used to using that language. So go through it, be very detailed, cross out or remove all the words that are specific to your industry. Also look for words that you did not use before you started in that industry, even if they are, you know, Merriam-Webster words. So a classic example of this is to leverage. If you work in the financial industry, then sure, you're leveraging stuff all the time. But frankly, nobody has ever leveraged garlic for a recipe. This is not a word that people use in everyday conversations. Get rid of it. So look for words like that, that maybe Normal, common words, they're not industry-specific words, but they are not used in normal, common, everyday conversation. Along the same lines, to leverage versus leverage. If you ever find yourself verbing a noun or nouning a verb, you're using jargon. So look out for that. Again, we use it so much that we don't always notice. But impact is another classic one. Impact is a noun. We verb it to, to impact something. So you're falling into the trap of jargon. Words that mean something different in your industry, very similar, so like leverage. It means the same thing outside of your industry, but it's used differently in your industry. So look for those words that maybe, once again, common everyday words, but the way they're used in your industry is not the way people use them at the dinner table. So right back to the dinner table. And the word that describes what you do. So this is a big one. If you work in sales, don't say sales. If you work in marketing, don't say marketing. If you work in branding, don't say branding replace that word, one word, with five words, not a paragraph, right? We're still talking about something concise. But if you can find five words to replace one that actually explains what you do, then you're going back to that dinner table language because people who don't work in branding know the word branding and they hear it and they probably use it. But the truth is that if they are not in your industry, if they're a lay person when it comes to branding, what they're picturing in your head is most likely not what you're picturing in your head when you use that word. So replace it with, uh, with five words instead of one that are more descriptive. So do that for all of your marketing language. Uh, as I say, if you've got everything written down, go through with the red pencil, circle all those words, and then try to replace them with either a single word or a few words that are more descriptive, but will be so much easier for your audience to capture. And that will make sure that you will start to use the language that your audience, whether clients or prospects are using at the dinner table, it makes it easy for them.
0: Wow, that's really helpful, Rebecca. And I think taking the word that you do and just putting the five words or being able to describe it in a different way is gonna help you to even think about what do I really do and what's the value that I offer to my customers. And I fall into that because public relations is so nebulous to so many people. They're like, I have no idea what you do. And so being able to describe that is, is really helpful. So that's great. Any thoughts or questions
2: for Rebecca? That was really helpful. Rebecca, do you have an example from like a recent client where that you can demonstrate how that translated from, you know, one word to five words and it made
1: a big impact? Well, one example that I like to use of this was working with a financial advisor, and she was talking about savings accounts. Um, But her core audience were people who were not at all financially savvy and may have never even had a savings account. So everybody knows what a savings account is, right? Again, this is common language. It's not obscure in any way. But the difference that it made when she was talking to her audience to go from What about your savings account to talking about what if we could put a chunk of your money somewhere where you don't touch it, and the longer you leave it there, it grows and it accumulates. Now, the people who are not doing this every day and who don't already have a savings account, that made it so much more accessible. So that's an example where I go back to. It's something that is an everyday word that we all use, but actually to replace the word with the full sentence made the conversation so much more accessible.
3: Well, I I realize that at the dinner table, I'm always talking about how I leverage Tabasco to impact the flavor profile. So I will never say that again. (laughs) Beautiful.
0: (laughs) I I think it's such a challenge because even something like a savings account is not going to hit most people as jargon. We're all going to just assume, well, everybody knows what this is. So that's a challenge to really think through. What are those words that may be simple words? They may be common words, but they're still a, a stumbling block for our customers. That's a really big challenge to... That's, that's a good thought exercise.
3: And I, and I actually did hear once someone talking about the word impact and what struck me is they said, unless you're talking about wisdom teeth, do not use the word impact. And it's it's always stuck with me how to properly use it.
0: I always thought the word impactful was not in the dictionary. For some reason that was drilled in my head in college. Don't ever use the word impactful because it's not in the dictionary. And I think it's in the dictionary now. <laughs> I think people have used it so much that it just...
3: Got
0: sure. stuck in there. Right. That's great. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, um, thank you, Rebecca. I so appreciate it. You guys, Rebecca has an amazing YouTube channel. Please go subscribe. Rebecca, put it in your put it in the chat. Yep. I love it. It's so funny. I always laugh when when I watch her. There's like two or three minutes and they're so smart. And then she has a book as well. So
2: put it in the yes, chat. Go get her. Let's take yes. a photo real quick. Yes.
0: Sarah is my right hand and most of my brain most of the time. And so what we like to do is just take a quick photo. Um, just because we like to remember just here. But I like to tell you guys, so we don't all make those weird faces. So I'm gonna count to three and oops, and I just made you guys all disappear, hang on. Sorry, for pushed the
2: button.
0: <laughs> I pushed the button everybody went, whoa, off my screen. Okay, I'm gonna count to three and um, we will do a picture and we'll do two. Everybody smile, one, two, three. All right, we'll do one more. All right, everybody smile, one, two, three. All right, thank you, Sarah, for reminding me. All right, Megan, would you like to share your tip? Yeah, of course.
4: Um, hey everyone, I'm Megan Yi. I am a Global Campaigns Director at TalkDesk, which is a AI-powered contact center solution platform um, for companies, B2B companies. Um, today, I wanted to share a quick tip um, on reporting and um, how you can keep up to date with some of your KPIs um, and just kind of you know keep track of everything and then also use it as a learning tool um, for the teams that you have. So I'm going to share a quick, um, where is my template here? Um, Here it is. So this is a template um, that I use on a daily basis with my team. Um, we call it weekly leading indicators. So it's basically taking account of all of the KPI metrics that you are being uh, measured against for a quarter or a fiscal year. Um, and we're kind of taking that into a Uh, template here and then reporting on it week over week so you can make sure that you are seeing your progress throughout the quarter um, and make sure that you're not falling behind. If you are falling behind, you can see what you are falling behind on specifically. Um, If something is doing great, you can take a look at those um, opportunities as well and see how you can leverage those further into the quarter as well. Uh, But you can see in the top corner, you kind of measure um, the percentage through the quarter that you are so you can see how far you are to your targets as well Um, and then on the bottom here you have all of the metrics that you're looking for, um, the current week results that you are measuring, the quarter to date total, and then your target for the quarter as well. So these are just rough numbers that we have here. Um, You can look at the status week over week also. So for instance, campaign members is one of the metrics that we measure by. So if we get um, 200 uh, campaign members in for a given week and the target for the quarter is 4,000, and then I can't do quick math, but 4,000 divided by 13 weeks, um, whatever that is for the weekly result, you kind of want to see how you're tracking um, for that specific week. And then if you are above target, um, you'll measure it as green. If you're a little bit under, you can measure it as yellow. Um, but if you're falling really far behind, you can measure it as red, and it gives your team a little bit of an indicator to be like, oh, like how are we doing? What what do we want to um, optimize? What do we want to change up? Um, especially as you're getting further down the quarter. So, um, just a fun little template. Um, it's great to keep up to date with what your KPIs are. Um, again, like I said, tracking progress through the quarter, and then it's a great learning tool for your team as well. So, um, if you are a senior leader and you manage a team, this is Is a great uh, intro step to get them introduced to reporting and metrics, and taking a look at um, how we're doing throughout the quarter. And it gives them a little bit of ownership as well to kind of say, "Hey, like this is my campaign. I want to show you how far we've done." Um, And it also allows them to be a little bit strategic to say, "Hey, uh, this." Uh, webinar that we did brought in so many campaign members and I wasn't expecting that. So maybe it's a third-party webinar that you did that's a good publication that you want to use and maybe it's something you think about in the future um, to try and replicate those results moving forward. So um, just a fun template to use uh, to kind of keep up uh, with your reporting and KPIs um, and hopefully a good learning tool for your teams.
0: That's wonderful. You're so organized and I just love how you were just so structured <laughs> with all this. I think the rest of us are like, wow, this is <laughs> so, so organized and it's amazing. Thoughts, questions for Megan?
4: I forgot to mention the comment section is kind of where your team can also put those notes. Um, So as they're evaluating how the performance is doing week over week, you can comment on it there. And then we keep it in a um, rolling presentation deck so you can go back further back in the quarter just to see what happened last quarter or what happened two weeks ago. Um, So it's a great historical reference as well for metrics and
5: reporting.
0: That sounds like you use this internally. Um, Is this something that you guys also use for clients as well to help them see what you guys have done for them?
4: Um, so we are not technically an agency. Uh, we just kind of have customers who use our product themselves. Um, they're more than welcome to use it as well, but this is kind of more something that we do internally to make sure all of our campaigns are running smoothly.
2: I I love this because, um, so I do a lot of social media marketing. We do some email marketing, we do digital marketing. And I mean, um, on one hand, the the goalpost changes constantly in terms of like, you know, which platform is kind of the hot platform right now. And even, you know, the algorithms and different things like that, that's going on. And sometimes you'll be putting all your effort, you know, into one platform and then turn around your email marketing is doing amazing. And you're not putting that effort into your email marketing or whatever. So looking at these metrics continue, you know, regularly is so important. Um, and this is a great, list of indicators, you know, to kind of see, oh, this is doing really well. Let's put some attention here. This is not doing so well. You know, maybe we shouldn't be pouring so many resources into it, et cetera, et cetera.
4: Exactly. It's great to manage your budget too, right? So if you're doing, focusing a lot on that third party partnerships and stuff, but they're not bringing in the revenue that you're looking to see, then, you know, it's a good opportunity to change things up.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah's right. We find a lot of clients want a lot of time invested into social media, because that's what they see. But we think most of their revenue comes in through email marketing. (laughs) And that's the thing that it's harder to get them to understand. So something like this is helpful to be able to say, well, your dollars are coming in through email marketing. So yes, do social, but invest more over here. So this is definitely a way to, to communicate that.
4: Exactly. And your metrics can change to whatever you guys measure within your companies too. These are just the ones that we use, but definitely email marketing stats, all of that good stuff, all good things that you can add into this template.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan. Any other thoughts or questions for Megan? Awesome. Great. Well, we will go to Kristen Moody of ID8. Please introduce yourself and we would love to hear your tip, Kristen.
5: Yes, I am Kristen Moody. I'm working with ID8. Um, So I'm filling in for Kristen Sellier today. I'm an account coordinator at ID8. I've been there for about a year. So I am going to share a tip about packaging design for CPG brands. And I have a PowerPoint to go with it. So pull this up. All right. So packaging design for CPG brands. So CPG, as you may know, stands for consumer packaged goods. And as you can imagine, there are some challenges that come along with it. Uh, does anyone want to guess what those might be? think food safety is probably the first.
3: <laughs> Ease of opening. Yes.
2: Um, recyclable.
5: Yes. Yeah, those are some good examples. And some of the other challenges that we interact with as a design agency is um, first and foremost about the aesthetic, standing out on a shelf amongst competitors, especially when everyone has those bright, colorful packages. Um, FDA regulations is something that I've personally dealt with a lot because it can add a lot of time and revisions to your project that you weren't necessarily expecting. Another one can be the actual materials you use for your packaging. I know we had a client that had some sort of substrate material that was meant to hold a um, It was Lebna. it's kind of like a yogurt sort of substance and it didn't work well in a fridge. So he had to rethink the materials for that and it all worked out in the end, but that's something that people might not think about initially when doing packaging design. Um, And the last one that I'm gonna cover is getting into retail which is the main one I'll be focusing on today. So why retail is important for CPG brands. Uh, It can expand reach into new locations and kind of offer a stable source of income in those locations that you might not have gotten if you're selling directly from your website or Shopify site. Um, It can also lower your costs in advertising, shipping, product returns as the retailer tends to cover those costs, at least a portion of them, and it increases your loyalty. I would never go and buy a Snickers bar directly from Snickers online because I know I can get them at any store near me. So how do you attract retailers with your packaging design? There are three key elements to this, and they are flexibility, sustainability, and inclusivity. So I'll be covering each a little bit. So flexibility, some of the benefits of it are durability and transportation. So when I say flexibility, I'm talking about the actual physical flexibility of the packaging and the way that it can shape and conform to kind of you know, contain the product. So that offers more protection for the product. It's cheaper and easier to transport because you can kind of pack them in really tight, uh, which reduces waste and also can have a positive environmental impact. So you've probably seen those little goat milk soap bars that I have as an example to the right. They have the smallest amount of packaging and it's paper. So it's great for the environment. It's also easy to carry. So some of the staples that you want to consider when thinking about flexibility are lightweight, non-rigid materials, um, resealable closures where needed, and portability. So if it's really bulky or doesn't have a handle, people might not even want to carry it around the store and may not end up buying it because of that. So then sustainability, retailers often set their own requirements for sustainability, so Amazon's a great example of that. They have a frustration-free packaging guidelines that require vendors and manufacturers to use recyclable packaging, so not having recyclable packaging or any element of that can actually prohibit you from, you know, getting in with the big guys, so to speak. And then inclusivity, when we talk about inclusivity in relation to packaging design, we're talking about maximum accessibility and usability for any age, gender, disability. Um, So some examples of how you can make your packaging design inclusive are having it be easy to open. To Keith's point, if it takes the strength of 100 men to open a pickle jar, there's probably an issue for me or an older audience or many other people. And then you can also incorporate sensory elements that might be really helpful for people who don't know what the packaging is. So an example to the right that I thought was interesting was when Kellogg's did the um, they had the Braille on the Rice Krispie treat packaging. So that was specifically there to help visually impaired children. So that is just a snippet. If you want to find out more information, we do have a blog post about it on our website. So you can scan that QR code there to get more details on some of the requirements of different retailers and just read a little bit more about it. But thank you guys for having me. (laughs) Thank you, Kristen. Um, I'm curious about the inclusivity.
0: Is that, are there guidelines for that? Because there's so many packages that don't address that at all. So at what point do you brands need to start thinking like, yes, I need to have Braille on this, or yes, I need to have Easy Open? And how do you determine that? Is there like a, a any official guideline for that?
5: I don't think there was in the blog post that I was covering that we spoke on. But I think that also when you consider the type of product that it is, say, if it's something that's specifically meant for visually impaired people, it would be hugely important to actually have some sort of braille or something that they could use on the packaging. So while I don't think a lot of other products incorporate it, I think if it's specifically geared toward that audience or is meant to be usable for everyone, it's something that people should be incorporating more.
0: Right. Interesting. Lots, lots there. Any thoughts for Kristen? Any comments?
1: There's so much that you covered and it was really insightful to see and and realize what goes into these things that we interact with every single day is there are there considerations based on what the product is to determine which of all those things might be more important that you might have to give more attention to versus other elements of that
5: yeah i think the sustainability one especially like if you're trying to get in with a specific retailer like amazon then those are things that you definitely have to consider more but really if you incorporate those three elements then it opens up doors for more and more retailers. So you could just focus on one if you're trying to get into one store here and there, but if you really want to make it the most that it can be and the most accessible it can be and friendly toward different retailers, then those are three elements that everyone should be considering.
0: We've also learned that there are strict guidelines on um, point of purchase displays. There are Mm -hmm. some stores that have really specific guidelines like Target won't let you have certain freestanding displays everything has to fit within their aesthetic and fit within their shelving from what I understand and then other places like Kroger and other places have different guidelines and it's it's hard to design for everything so you know there's you have to know what market you want to go to to be able to go by
5: those guidelines because they vary so much. Right. And sometimes it just requires variations as well. So um the same client that I mentioned that had the issues initially with their packaging materials when they were trying to get into Costco, Costco didn't necessarily want their 12 ounce, but they wanted them to make a 24 ounce. So now they're like, all right, well, now we got to factor in more marketing just to get in with Costco. So it's definitely a as-you go sort of process and realizing what you need, but it's a good opportunity when we wanna partner with a client. Cause it's like, yeah, we're willing to help you with whatever you need as many retailers as you can get in with. So it's exciting, it's fun. I like packaging design for food. I feel like it's the most <laughs> emotional buy that people can make in a way. So it's really interesting to analyze the colors and just the iconography, all those different things. I would love for you to come back and do a tip on how do you stand out on the shelf? Because
0: I know that's such a huge part of it. So that would be a fun, fun follow-up.
5: Yeah. Sometimes by standing out, you have to make something that doesn't look like it would stand out. So if you have like a stark white product, that's going to be in the middle of all these different bright reds and blues and greens, sometimes that stands out a lot more. So considering where it's going to be placed on the shelf is huge as well. I know that was a battle when we were talking about, you know, where this product's going to be placed that no one really knows what it is. And it could be yogurt. It could be cheese. It could be like a dip of some sort. So yeah, it was that was one of the considerations too. Yeah. um, Scott, I'm blanking on his last name. Sarah, what is Scott's last name?
0: Um, Siegel? Siegel. Scott Siegel. He does a lot with the CPG packaging. And he was talking about this company he has that has ice cream, but it's shelf stable. And so it's not in the ice cream department purposely because they want it to be separate from every other Ice cream that you can buy, and so it shows up in just random places in the store where it's like, oh, there's ice cream in the cracker aisle, and different. They, like they just put it in weird places, so that people come by it, whereas they wouldn't necessarily see it if it's all with the ice cream and it wouldn't stand out. So yeah, that's a big thing. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kristen. Appreciate it. All right. So I'm gonna jump in with a tip today, and then if we have a little bit of time, if you guys want to just do introductions, and if you want to just say who you are and your name, if you don't want to, that's fine. And then um, if anybody else has anything they wanna add or any other little short tips they wanna throw in there, we are always happy to hear them. So my name is Stephanie Richards and my company is SoGo Public Relations and Sarah and I work together and we do public relations and get media exposure for business to business companies. That is our specialty. So that means having companies show up in trade publications, that's usually our our, um, main sweet spot. So today I wanna talk to you guys about what it actually takes to pitch and give you the formula of these are the steps that it takes to get in front of the media and to get their attention. So there are a lot of steps with this, and it really starts with coming up with a great story to pitch. So that's going to have to be a separate thing. I've got some things on the forum. If you go to the Sogro Marketing Council page, there's a forum, there's a PR section, there's all kinds of tips on how do you come up with a great pitch, but that's really the foundation. You have to come up with something that is new, something that is not out there, something that's maybe different than what everybody else is saying, and then something that matters to the audience of the media outlet that you're trying to reach. So this is not just, hey, our company's great, we're wonderful. You really have to come up with something that is educational or informational. So you come up with your great pitch, and then you write your pitch, and you just start to Um, you know, flesh out what are the bullet points and and what does it look like? And then there's a, a structure, but keeping it short and sweet. And so you actually write your pitch and kind of get your thoughts on paper. And then the next step is to build a media list. And so we use a database for this. And so we'll go in and we'll pick out the types of media outlets that we want, whether it's trade publications or if it's consumer magazines or if it's TV, whatever it might be. And so we'll come up with a whole list of publications Sometimes there's 30 on it. Sometimes there's 400. Uh, You know, it could, it just varies depending upon what the topic is that we're trying to cover. If you don't have a database, um, I have a forum post that's called Seven Ways to Find Anyone's Contact Information. So you can create your own media list by doing some Google search. Um, Even just calling the publication is also a way. So from here, you're going to really narrow down and figure out. What are the publications that you really want to be in? So maybe there's 400 on your list. What are the top 15 that you want to be in? And from there, you start to research those publications. This is really time-consuming. This is what a lot of people skip. But you want to go to the website. You want to read their media kit. And that's the section on their website that's for advertising. But what that will do is it will tell you who the audience is. It will often tell you what topics they're going to cover in their editorial calendar. So they may say in January, we're going to cover this topic and February, we're covering this topic and that sort of thing. So that you know if they're even covering your topic. And then when you're on that website, you are going to go to their section where they have, um, they may call it like features or topics or whatever it might be and look at the main headings and see where does my story fit within this? And if it doesn't, then it's not a good publication. But using the keywords, so if there's a menu item that matches what you're talking about, that's a really good indicator that that's a topic that they're interested in. So find where you might fit and then start reading stories about that. Search for what's the latest thing that has been said about this? Has anybody written about it recently? Am I offering a new perspective? Have they already covered this? Is it something that I'm not adding anything new to the story? Nobody wants a Me Too story where They wrote something and then you're just saying the same thing and adding it. That's not gonna get you media coverage. You have to say something really new and fresh. The only way to do that is to know what they've already written. So again, this is time consuming, but this is the part where you really dig in and get to know these publications. So from there, you start to decide, okay, so I, I have these three publications. These are my top ones. And then you start finding the people within that organization that are gonna be the ones that are the decision makers. So who is writing about the content are they a feature writer? Are they somebody that's internal to the publication, like an editor? Or is it somebody that's making the decision who's you know, um, the editorial director, who's not writing the piece, but they're making the decision. So just trying to see who the people are to contact you, to contact them. Um, sometimes the website will have writer's guidelines or a submission form. Don't miss that because if they say something specific like send news releases to this person, guess what? If you send it to somebody else, they're not going to be super happy about that. So they may want a specific person to get news releases. They may want you to send a news release by a form and not an email. Um, And then they often will have a person's contact name and you can see what area they cover and they'll say, you know, for um, financial stories, contact this person or whatever it might be. So, you know, look into all that, make sure you've got all that information before you start pitching. And then the next thing to do is take those people And go to LinkedIn, Um, you know, make sure that they are still at the publication. (laughs) I have found that there are people that are still on a media website. They have moved on and it has been months and they are no longer there anymore. So, you know, check LinkedIn, make sure that they're still active in that role, um, you know, and just read their bio, see what they're covering. And sometimes you can find their contact information there if it's not on the website. So now you've got all this information. So now you're going to tailor your pitch. So you wrote your general story. Now you're going to look at the publication, what they're covering, what you may be able to add to that specific story. And you're going to take your pitch, and you're going to make it specific to that publication. So we've gone from a huge scope. And now we're, we're getting really, really specific. And if you can be able to use the language that that publication uses, what do they call their audience? Re- use those words. Like go in and change your article, and you know use those words in there. If there's specific phrases that they use, use those words. Um, I also like to study the um, headlines and and see what the format is. A lot of publications have either like a how-to headline. Some are questions, and see if you can mimic that. And and you basically want to write your article and and have that full text done. Like this, this could be published as it is right now as an exclusive article. And then you want to be able to pitch that to the specific person. And what we recommend for something like a thought leadership piece is you wanna do something that is gonna be an exclusive and just offer it to one publication. A news release is different where that's announcing some sort of news item. And you, know, you can have that in multiple publications, but if you're gonna do a thought leadership piece, you wanna offer it to one publication and say, you can publish this, You'll be the only one that has it we won't send it to anybody else are you interested in this and that's why we're tailoring it so specifically to them so the next thing is they have to open your email because otherwise all this work is not going to matter so now you have to write a killer subject line (laughs) to get them to open your your um your email to even know what your story is and then you send your pitch and then you wait a couple of days because if you're offering an exclusive, you don't want to send it to six people and then have six people say yes, and now you're in a really awkward position where you offered an exclusive and now it's no longer exclusive. Um, so you know a couple days is is usually enough time. If they don't respond, you can follow up. If they do respond, great, they publish it. Um, you know if you don't get any response and no, and you don't get any response after follow up, then you go on to the next person. So you pitch until somebody says yes. If you get nothing, you need to go back to your story. You need to go back to your pitch and think, why is this not getting picked up? And then you you tailor it, you tweak it, you go back through the process, and then you start over again. So I just wanted to share that this is the the way that we pitch. I know other companies do it differently. A lot of companies will you know, send it to multiple people at the same time and, and send blind carbon copy emails and that sort of thing but we find that this is more effective in getting exclusives and getting the content sent but it's a lot more than sometimes people realize for one story to get published but if you do it this way it works and this is something that you guys can do as an expert you know you can pick one publication that you want to target write something for it find the email take these steps and send an email to that person if they don't respond, you can send it to somebody else. So, um, you know, it's good for you guys or your clients if that's something that they're interested in as well. So any thoughts or questions?
3: I'm I'm curious, Stephanie, um, if, if you have, if you're sending uh, or pitching a publication or an outlet that you've pitched previously, do you go back to the same person? Do you find like, like that gives you a bit of an in or do they want you to just, follow the process regardless of if you know somebody there.
0: It is so great if you can go back to the same person because your email is not getting caught in spam usually because they've already responded to you and you've communicated with them. So a lot of times you can bypass the formal process if it's like a form online that they want you to submit, Mm -hmm. you can just go straight to the person.
3: Great.
2: Any other thoughts or questions? Also, with what Stephanie was saying, if if your article is not getting picked up, sometimes if you send it again to the same person and maybe even say, sometimes you can get some feedback about what about the article is not working. And that can be really helpful because they may be like, oh, well, we like it, but this or that or whatever direction or we really want this type of source. Um, So don't be like, don't think it's just like one and wait, like. You know, send more than one email. Follow up, you know, maybe a couple of days later, and ask if there's anything about the article that they could that you could change or things like that. That can be helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to put in there. You are the first person I have sent this to. We wrote it for your publication. This is an exclusive. And if it doesn't work, then you basically take the article, change it for the next publication. You know and then you don't have to say you're the first one to contact if they're the second, but you can just say, you know, you are the only one that is being given this right now because nobody else has, has off, you know, nobody else has um accepted it. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh,
3: are, you, are you allowed to say if I could ask one more question, are you allowed to say that if they want to use it, it needs to be used by a certain time or in a certain way that they just don't get exclusive use as they want to use it?
0: They're every publication is different and some publications want to own something forever. And some publications just want the first right to publish it and then they don't care. So it's really just dependent on the publication and the way we look at it is that you still own the ideas. And so if you take that idea and then package it in a different article, you can offer the idea in a different form to somebody else. And so it's not like you can never write about that again. It's just that exact combination of words that exact headline, those exact bullet points—that's exclusive to that publication. And then you can take something different and send it to another publication. But yeah, it does vary by by publication for sure.
3: But you can tell them if they want to hold it till a certain time, you can say, "I can't wait that long." You know, uh, yeah.
0: right. And so usually in the follow up, we'll say, "You know, please let us know by this date if you're not interested." Um, And we just assume that if they don't respond in two days, they're not interested and we move on. If they, I've had editors come back and say, oh, I didn't get to this. You know, we we would love this. I'm like, I'm sorry, I already sent it to somebody else. But -hmm. that's actually a great situation because then I say, we'll write you another article about this topic. (laughs) And so then you get too published. So it really ends up being a positive in that sense.
3: Right.
2: And sometimes they publish it and don't tell you. So make sure that you like check, you know, Google or search. You know, if it's been a couple days and you haven't heard from anyone, go ahead and do like, maybe, and then they'll be like, oh, I was too busy. Because a lot of editors and writers and reporters are are very busy and they're understaffed, you know, so anyway, try it. This,
0: this is a totally different process if you have a news release that's going to go to multiple people. This is for an exclusive thought leadership piece. It's a little different. You know, a news release, you can send to multiple people the same um, on the same day. But I still send individual emails. I still don't mass email. So... Um, wonderful. Would anybody like to do a quick introduction before we leave? Like I said, I know um, you know if you don't have a tip prepared, that's totally fine, but you guys are welcome to just say your name and your company if you guys just want to introduce yourself and your area of expertise. Why not? Go for it, Keith.
3: All right. Uh, Keith Binger, uh, my expertise is in international revenue generation and marketing. So if, if companies are looking to grow their business overseas, they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to export Uh, I can help them walk them through the process get more customers look at what their readiness is to to do export and marketing in other countries
0: great thank you anybody else before we sign off
3: I'll go. I'm a uh, Kurt Euler. I currently, uh, by day, work for Exp Realty. They're the largest brokerage in the United States uh, and the largest independent real estate company in the world. And then do a good bit of uh, side marketing and consulting for hypergrowth companies or companies that are trying to get there.
0: That's great, awesome, thank you. And like I said, put all of your contact information in the chat. Um, if anybody wants to present a tip next time, here's the link in the chat. It's PR backslash submit. Submit your tips. We would love to have you guys share a tip next week. If there are any marketers that you know, please invite them because that knowledge is helpful for us. We would love an SEO person. (laughs) That is one that I I love SEO and we need somebody in SEO. Can anybody think of any other area that they would like to see? And maybe somebody knows somebody in that area.
3: Well, let me know what you want to talk to about, talk about SEO. So I'm running one of the largest enterprise SEO uh, initiatives right now in the world. Well, you
0: please just <laughs> tell us anything, like anything that you know about us. It's just such a make or break thing with marketing that you could present a tip on SEO every month and we would be thrilled.
3: <laughs> well, let's talk th- let, next time. How about we talk about topical authority? Cause that'll play very well with the other parts of marketing too. Awesome.
0: Awesome. That sounds great. That would be wonderful. So yeah. So go ahead and subscribe. Um, Sarah, do you have the Eventbrite link? Maybe you can put it in the chat. I don't know if we have the one up yet. Um, But yeah, follow us on LinkedIn as well, because we do invites through LinkedIn. But so appreciate you guys coming today. I always learn so much from everybody. And like I said, grab coffee with each other. Um, Sarah and I are toying with the idea of doing this in person again. So we've got some things in the works. And then we also, um, a lot of times we'll do the tips as a video that we will send to you and you can promote it on your channels, your social media, newsletters, whatever it is. It's just nice to show your expertise and just have a video. So next meeting is October 17th. Go ahead and um, subscribe to that. Go ahead and submit your tips. And yep, Sarah, just put it in the chat. Um, No,
2: it didn't work right. It's like, it's one of the crazy MailChimp tracking.
0: You know, I think I've got it. But anyhow, um, and we'll also, um, you know, email you guys out too. But yeah, sounds good. Well, thank you guys for attending. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day and we'll see you guys on October 17th. Thank you for listening to the SoGro Marketing Council podcast. Want to be part of our next meeting? Visit SoGroPR.com, that's S O W G R O W P R.com, and click on the Marketing Council tab to sign up for our next event.
2: Until next time, keep growing.